All right, the Charles in Charge show's back for some reason. The camera clicked off for a second. So um, again, I sit right between the two. So between Biden and Trump, I honestly think that Trump can pull back ahead if he probably steps aside on the COVID and lets his doctors and team uh, step forward and start really making the decisions and help push that through. Um, like maybe stop coming on without a mask and stop making statements. You know, I know so much about the virus. I feel like he's pushing school reopening um, too hard. I think you should let the individual schools make that decision. No one likes being told what to do when it's the safety of their kids, right? I have a daughter. I made the decision. Um, we had a choice between center to class and let her stay home. I chose stay home. And then it turns out the school literally asked that question for no reason because Three days later, they were like, yeah, we decided all classes are online and we're implementing a really good online program. So honestly, wasted my time, but I'm glad. Um, the economy, if we start turning things around and going back up, you're going to see huge increased gains. Um, that could definitely help. Uh, oh, yeah, whoever Biden picks as VP, right? So Biden still hasn't decided yet if he picks someone too far left. This will make a lot of the middle base um, have to make a really tough decision. Um, so he could have an advantage over that. Uh, the conventions, uh, debating. So this is huge. Um, how are the debates going to take place? I'm sure maybe on stage is definitely more than six feet apart. It sucks because we're not going to get to see these two fists fight. Maybe we will. I don't know. It's crazy here. Um, but... Can Biden withstand debating Donald Trump? And I feel like can Donald Trump stop punching down so low and take a high road for once? And I think if he took a high road, he would cream Biden. Um, fundraising, the Biden campaign still struggles to make money. I know they're beyond low. Trump's campaign is astronomical. He has donors from all over the world, and they're just making nothing but money. Uh, the candidate's health. That's true. These two are old. <laughs> Their combined age is 151, sea turtle age here. Um, Trump, from what I'm gathering and listening to multiple interviews, uh, seems to be slightly ahead in this aspect, um, both physical and mental. Um, but maybe once you see Biden and them side by side, this could be different. And I think that would go back to the actual debate which I am so excited and stoked for now. I am on fire. Um, any potential, yeah. So also a lot can happen between now and November, like with all the schools going back, with all the work. No one knows, like we could have a huge spike of COVID and all of that could crush all of this. Uh, so honestly, we don't know. Uh, and that's pretty much it for me today. Those are some of the biggest stories coming out of America, I, I'd like to check a global one. Uh, let's see, uh, world. I know um, uh, Regina, Regina, let me look that up real quick. I was talking about it this morning, but let me see if I can spell it. Honda, Regina. Jeez. 
Oh yeah, Rohingya refugees, they're facing a terrible crisis. They're stuck in these, they're like a non-state identified population of a million people that are stuck in this refugee camp of only like five miles right outside of Bangladesh. Bangladesh refuses to let them in. They can't go back to their company country um, because they're Buddhist and these people are Muslim. They're completely at war. They're being murdered there and then they're not allowed into Budapest. So they're in this weird, muddy camp that housing over like 700 plus thousand refugees and i know that they're getting their first cases of covid so i know that saveachild.org will let you donate to these refugees and i think maybe uh, that's something i'm going to do and i really hope that people do that um this isn't even on here but i know that that's world news from some of the stories um i also don't see anything about um concentration camps in China, but I know that's another huge thing that's popping up right now. They're forming, they're also forcing these people on the outside edges of China to work these ridiculous slave hours to produce masks for us. Uh, China launches an ambitious mission to Mars. So I guess we're in a space race. Space time. All right. Well, that's it for me today. Thank you for watching the Charles in Charge show. I'll do this uh, periodically throughout the week when top stories roll through. I mean, one day I'd like to do this every day. So support me. Uh, thank you. Subscribe and like. It means a lot. It's free. I'm local I'm here in Texas. Um, thank you. All right. Welcome to the Charles in Charge show. We're doing things a little different today. I'm going to go over topics in the news. Last time I had showed them and kind of scrolled through them. Not really getting the camera connection that I need at the time, so I'm gonna have to talk about it and just read you the daily news and give you my take on most of it. Um, so here we are, right off the back. Uh, let's go. Um, civil rights, uh, $600 a week, poverty remedy or job slayer. Let's go into it. Honestly, before we even start, $600 a week is a lot of money. I do believe that it's more than two-thirds of people's original salary. I mean, they're making more at $600 a week. And I have two masters, and I want to tell you, they're making pretty much as much as I make staying home. So before I even start, this is a very, very interesting topic for me personally because I know a doctor who was in our lab who left to find another job, but they're not in a rush anymore because they're making $600 a week, which is pretty much what they were making anyway in my lab as a, as a doctor. Because in, in a lot of the academia, they, they don't pay as much as industry, which I am um, eventually leaving somewhere for, and so did he. Um, and then, yes, we'll get bigger salaries down the road, but in academia stance, this, I mean, you're making as much money as me. Why would I want to go work? And if I was, if I didn't have a job right now, I would definitely be using this because there was a process throughout the middle of summer where I thought, hey, maybe I'll be laid off because, you know, how long is this COVID going to last? And um, will my employer be able to hang on to me? It turns out that they could, but my thing is, this did cross my mind. It, this is definitely a lot of money $600 a week but let's go into the story so um also another thing before I jump into the story I would be worried about is how long does this last from what I gathered from friends who are on it 
they don't know. Um, they're not sure. I guess it's going to keep getting prolonged. So maybe, ah, God. All right. On the face of it, $600 is pretty unremarkable number. The federal government has been paying this additional amount each week to every person who has lost a job because of the pandemic. But astonishingly, the number has taken on huge significance in its short life as the pandemic wreaks havoc on the United States, snatching millions of jobs, mostly in low-income sectors. The additional $600 weekly payment has become a financial lifeline. And I do believe this for many people. It is a great light light, a lifeline. This helps. This is what they need, um, helping pay for rent, food, clothing. Uh, this has been going on since the beginning of April. But I know that even if you get in now, um, you can get all the way back paid to before April, I believe, all the way to February. And so you can get a giant lump sum check, which is what I've heard has been happening. I don't know if that's true, but it's – I mean, if you need it, yes. If you don't – it's like, but who doesn't need it, right? Who doesn't need the money? Who doesn't have a bill that they can pay in a sense? It has also single-handedly changed the economic equation. One topsy-turvy outcome is that many people are earning more staying home than they did. This is what I was talking about. More staying home than they did in the job they lost. Where is my drive to go find that new job? And some businesses are finding that employees do not want to come back to jobs that pay less than what they can earn in unemployment. This is true, but the payment now also makes up about 15% of the entire nation's wages and is actually fueling a portion of the U.S. economy because unemployed people are spending more than they did before the pandemic, while those who have jobs are spending less. This is true right now. I'm saving. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's around the corner, but honestly, if I had already learned to live on $1,200 a month and you're telling me that I now double that and I get 2400 yeah, I'd be spending that 1200 And I think we all know somebody who might be. Um, so, wow, I didn't even think about that part. Obviously, none of this folds neatly into a clear storyline, but they all will play a role in deciding the fate of this payment by members of Congress in the next few days. But at a time when coronavirus cases in the U.S. have crossed 4 million and people are losing jobs, many worry that taking the payments away would have a devastating effect. This is true. Um, you know, also, the thing is, once you start something like this, when do you amp it down? How do you amp it down? You know, COVID hasn't gone away yet. We still have COVID. So how do you just snatch this money and stop? A lot is at stake, as we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic. For many, it has supported their most basic needs. People like bartender Courtney Woodruff, who lost her job at a Denver pub from whom the extra unemployment pays for rent and food. I don't really spend a lot, she says. Her experience is backed by research that tracks how people are spending the money. We have evidence that it's really been the federal stimulus money that has kept renters in their home. Um, an affordable housing nonprofit, she worries that taking it away will lead to a tsunami of evictions. I make less money working than those who lost their job is what she said. Still, there's no doubt that the pay has created inequalities. University of Chicago researchers found that for two-thirds of people who lose jobs, their unemployment benefits exceed what they had been earning. The researchers even drilled down into specific low-paying jobs to see how those who kept working earned less than those who weren't. For instance, unemployed janitors who are eligible to collect 158% of their pay 
Well, the typical retail worker could only get 142% of what they earn. So that's for a janitor. They looked at their salary and they said, okay, this is what you made. You probably made like 1900 a month as a janitor. Typical retail worker made like, you know, 2200 The janitor's winning. Now they're making more than the retail worker, which arguably they probably should because janitors do do a lot of work and a lot of gross work that honestly all the janitors at my school growing up deserve way more money from all the kids' stuff that they had to put up with. Uh, NPR spoke to Catherine Thomas, who works the cash register at a small food co-op, whatever that means, in Wisconsin. Thomas remembers seeing people around her lose jobs and then start collecting the state unemployment income plus extra federal relief of $600 a week. This is her response. I felt very angry. She says, I have to still go to work and I make less money being essential. 600 a week. That's almost my whole paycheck for me. Even with hazard pay, I still don't make that much money. This is her. Thomas received an extra $2 an hour for working during the pandemic. It was part of the temporary bump in pay called hero pay. Wow. That's how much we pay heroes is $2 extra an hour. All right. <laughs> Thank you pay or hazard pay as they call it. That many employers like Kroger's and Amazon paid workers who risked their health to continue to work during the pandemic. That extra pay of between a dollar to three dollars has now largely gone. So they've already stopped doing it. When the unemployment office is competition for business owners, the 600 a week works out to be about 15 an hour, which is higher than what employers pay workers in many parts of the country. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I make a little bit over 15 an hour, more like 18. Uh, so if a jobless person receives 340 a week in state unemployment benefits, the national average, then the additional payment from the federal program, the take-home pay would be 940 each week. Oh my God, so they're getting 600 plus their 340? That's a lot of money. These expanded federal benefits were no match for copy shop owner Sky Marietta, who paid her employees between 10 to 15 an hour, she voluntarily decided to close her coffee shop and laid off her employees so they would qualify for expanded unemployment benefits. So here's a coffee shop owner who had a close, made more sense to close, lay off her employees, and just shelter through this and let them take all the benefits because they're going to get more on these benefits until it's done. And she says, not because they did not like their job or because they did not want to work, uh, Marietta said, but because it would cost them literally hundreds of dollars per week to be employed, right? So you have a whole bunch of employees. They're all complaining, hey, I, I'll make more unemployed. Can you pay us more? And you're like, no, I honestly can't. And I can't see why you would come to work and make less. Universal income is here. Should it stay? The payment that came into being via a hastily passed bill was sudden and unexpected, like the virus itself. Its immediate outcomes, however, are leading economists to assess the income gap. Well, and yeah, I was thinking about all the Democratic candidates. Here it comes. Last year, when Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang proposed a payment of $1,000 a month, to every adult in America for losing jobs to technological advances such as automation. His rival 2020 candidates laughed at his proposal. Yang called it universal basic income, the premise of which is to alleviate poverty 
and stagnant wages for those who lose jobs for no fault of their own while providing economic stimulus to American businesses. And yet within months, the coronavirus did exactly that. Jobs disappeared for tens of thousands of Americans in response to the U.S. government's mailed-out stimulus check to most households of $1,200 plus $500 for each child and then added the $600 enhanced unemployment benefit. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. And why did they just think there wouldn't be some calls? Maybe they did. Maybe they knew. But at this time, it seemed like the right thing to do. And just like that, the coronavirus brought universal basic income into the hands of tens of millions of Americans. Now, at least two studies show that despite the onslaught of the worst recession since the Great Depression, America's poverty rate hasn't fallen as fast as it would have. That's because this additional payment is keeping many low-income families afloat and even allowing them to spend a little more than normally would. By no stretch, the imagination is 600 a week, which works out to a little more than 30000 a year, a luxurious income. It's a pretty good income, honestly. You can do a lot with 30000 a year. Economists say that the spending exposes the large number of people living paycheck to paycheck and that it's time to examine policies to help with better distribution of wealth in this country. So who's getting the $600? What we know is that currently about three or 30 million people in America are receiving it, and the payment is set to expire July 31st because of the new way the state unemployment payment is scheduled. The last of the 600 would have gone out this past weekend, just as there's evidence of more people losing jobs with the latest spikes in cases. The intense debate now in Washington is whether to extend these benefits or replace them with something else. Maybe just kind of decrease that down a little bit, maybe 450 or something. Just, but yeah, I mean, I really don't know. Um, that would have to be calculated out. Or again, right, 600 if you were making more than 30,000, you know, 450 if you were making less. Like, you shouldn't be getting a raise to stay home because it's going to put someone like a coffee shop owner out of business because at paying anywhere between 10 to 15 doesn't make sense. So for anyone out there who's making 12, 13, $14 an hour, there's no need to go to work. Honestly, if they keep extending this and pushing it forward, um, like I could actually quit my job, stay home, post videos, do this all day till it blows up. And it would be enough to get me by and not have to go to work until this takes off or, you know, so I find another job. So actually that's not a bad idea. <laughs> JK. Um, the intense debate in Washington is whether to extend these benefits. Uh, a particular worry is that lower income households and women are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 job loss. Research from the University of Chicago shows that over 57% of women making less than 30,000 lost their income during the first months of the crisis. Another huge worry, a large portion of the job losses are permanent. I wonder if what, where are they getting that number? And I'll have to look um, because I'm just saying this. Um, I heard that a lot of women who were actually stay-at-home moms that had like maybe quit their job or taken off from their job prior was the system was just saying yes to everyone, started signing up. 
Um, so this could possibly be somewhere of this number. Um, and, and I'm only saying that it's probably 57% because a lot more women are stay at home. So it would be like a huge increase. Um, but I'll look, I'll look. Let's actually look. Chicago News. Okay, well, first off, this isn't Chicago University. This is Chicago News. Let me make that clear. Something coming from a university is definitely more reliable than something coming from the news, but we're still going to read it. The coronavirus is deepening the divides among the United States along race and gender lines. New research, okay, from the university examines how COVID outbreak disproportionately harmed those who were already struggling before the pandemic. Over 57% of women making less than 30000 have lost their income during the first month. But among men and women making least 45 a year or fewer, uh, than 30% reported losing income. So anyone making more than 45,000, only 30% reported a loss of income. Yeah, I mean, it's not beneficial to report that loss anyway, because you'd probably be best to go find another job and you're normally going to be able to find one within that pay range because they are still actually hiring, even though they have put a lot of halts. I still know a lot of people who got a job. I actually just recently got a job as a professor Um at a school nearby. So, I mean, I'm saying that even though there's halts, there's still ways in the system to get a job. Another huge worry, a large portion of the job losses are permanent. We estimate that 42% of recent pandemic induced layoff rolls out in permanent job loss. And see that, that, that to me worries me because that would be the reason that I'd want to start possibly figuring out the real number that people need because you don't want them not going back to their jobs where these jobs can only afford to pay them between 10 to 15 to stay open. Um, but also I think we need to look into the structure of these businesses. I do think for a long time, these businesses make far too much profit and they feel that they need to make higher amounts of profit, like times three or four per, times three or four times the amount of profit and then pay their employees out of that, which is like little wages. So you have like the owner of the business making three or four hundred thousand a year. If your business is making six hundred thousand, but you're taking three or four hundred out of it, but you're only giving your employees ten to fifteen, I think that's wrong. I think you need to be making one hundred and fifty thousand a year and giving that other two hundred thousand back into the business to your employees. And I think this should spike all the way up to the top. Like I think there's a gross amount of wealth that people accumulate from these businesses and companies that are far exceeding what they need. Like, for example, a CEO of AT&T, some of them make 130 million, 330 million. Imagine if, so there's a lot of people at AT&T on the call lines who make nine to 12 to $15 an hour. Imagine if they took home 10 million and put that other 120 million solely into their employees' salaries they could definitely give them huge pay increases, maybe $17, $18, $19 an hour spread out among them, and you're talking about a better life for everyone in your company. But again, that would be called stealing wealth from the far side, which is not something that I, the far right, which is not something that I'm necessarily for either. I think there needs to be some kind of in-between. Like I'm not saying 10 million out of 130 is fair. I'm saying... Though if you're making 130 million a year, you don't need that much money, honestly. Um, and if you do need that much to be happy, then it doesn't matter. You, you need more to be even happier.
All right, but let's move on to the next story. So there we go. That's the how the $600 pandemic unemployment payment is affecting us. And this is just something to talk about and talk with people in your work and have a discussion. Feel free to comment or email. I'd like to have a discussion on that. Uh, let's see. So Democrats meet virtually to approve platform that builds up Biden-Sanders efforts. Ah, sure, we could read it. Uh, Democrats are meeting remotely Monday afternoon to approve a lengthy policy platform that seeks to balance the interest of the Democratic Party's more moderate and liberal fractions. The virtual meeting comes three weeks ahead of what will be one of the strangest, I was going to say greatest, strangest party conventions in U.S. history. No delegates, few Democrat dignitaries will travel to Milwaukee to nominate former Vice President Joe Biden to the party's standard bearer. Instead, the convention will be held mostly remotely, with only Biden and a few speakers appearing from Milwaukee. Okay, so they're going to have this um, virtual, which is probably how everyone else is going to watch it. Anyway, I don't see a lot of people going, but the draft platform released last week draws heavily from a report issued this month by Joint Task Force organized by Biden, Biden and his one-time campaign rival, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. It tries to bridge the gap between Sanders' progressive politics and Biden's more modern approach to governing. Dozens of Democratic officials are considering amendments to plan Monday. Look, there's a video. I wish I had it set up to where we could watch it together. The draft party document endorses universal health care and makes it clear that low or no cost coverage for every American is the party's eventual goal. Rather than backing a single mandatory government-run health insurance program, however, it calls for adding a public option to the existing Affordable Care Act. Pretty much it's saying you could, we're going to force you to get one, but you don't have to get one, but you'll one day get one. The platform does nod to Medicare for All, the policy backed by Sanders saying, we are proud our party welcomes advocates who want to build on and strengthen the Affordable Care Act and those who support a Medicare for All approach. So I, I think Biden actually, or Bernie reached out last week and gave the fist up to Biden saying he's going to you know, support Biden and help him run all the way through. This should be really good news for many, uh, considering it took Obama forever to do it, which is interesting to me. Um, it also calls for a minimum $15 wage, mandatory paid family leave, more federal gun control, broad changes to federal sentencing guidelines and drug laws, and many other changes that most Democratic can Candidates for Congress and the White House have supported for years. These are a lot of issues that I stand firmly with. I do think, um, I know I have friends, I have a gun myself, um, but I do believe we do need more federal gun control. Honestly, we control teenagers in cars and they kill people. And yes, I know the statistics, but I, I, I can quote you some very good statistics um, from FBI database websites that show that I believe uh, anyone under the age of 25 should have to have some form of training or class, like a driving school in a sense, but for the gun, and it's just a weekend, and then you can go and get your gun or purchase a gun because this will test your mental capacity to own one. And if you're in the military or police force at 18, well, that's your training and that's your loophole around it. So that's just my take because I believe it's like 90 
92%, if that's correct, I'll, I'll check. It was like 92% of mass shooters were 25 and under. Um, the only outlier was like the one from Las Vegas. Um, but it's still like 90% of the time was 25 and under. And this makes sense because your brain's actually not fully done developing to your 25. So maybe we should look at that when we're making federal guidelines for guns. Um, just something I'm saying. A broad changes to federal sentencing guidelines and drug laws. Uh, but let me touch real quick on that too. The last thing I want is someone to think that I would want someone to come into your house and take your gun. That's dangerous. It's dumb. And it would lead to mass murders. And that's not something I would want. Um, changes that most Democratic candidates for Congress in the White House have supported for years. Platform Committee co-chair Dennis McDonough, who served as former President Barack Obama's chief staff, called it the boldest Democratic platform in American history. Yeah, I mean, that's just pretty much all of everyone's ideas just shoved into one, one thing so they can just get everyone from everywhere uh i'm looking for the free school maybe i missed it uh solar panels wind turbines minimum mandatory family leave federal gun control broad changes to federal many it's not saying but i'm sure it's there we should never confuse unity with unanimity nor should we confuse debate with division and that's it all right Here's some others. Inside 100, Biden's foreign policy is all about relationships. Inside 100 days to the presidential election, nine things that could change the race. Ooh, what could change the race? We're riding with Biden or make America even better with Trump. All right, that's the picture. Uh, with less than 100 days until election, here's where things stand. So I want to say this, and I like to say this. I don't actually know where this news article stands. I don't know where their bias is, and I think that's a problem with a lot of news articles. They pretend to be objective, and then you'll read, and they have their very own bias. I'm not a fan of that. I like honesty. I sit right in the middle on a lot of things, and I like them to be honest and open. But this isn't saying where they're coming from. So I'm going to read this, but it doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. Um. Joe Biden has the clear advantage for now. I talked about this last week. Um, that's a broad statement. It's also a statement that a lot of um, conservatives don't follow or believe because if you look at the past with Hillary, they said that about Hillary and Trump still pulled away and he is the incumbent president. And I think only like once in history have the incumbent president been taken out. Let's look that. Yeah. Has an incumbent president been taken out before? This is a one-man show. I don't have it like uh, what's his buddy Joe Rogan, where he asks questions and someone else types it in. I I gotta do all the typing here. Could Trump lose the Republican nomination? Here's the history of the primary challenges to incumbent presidents. From the very beginning of his presidency, Donald Trump has never really left campaign mode. But as the next election gets closer, that approach has turned into a more concrete play for victory in 2020. Okay. 
Uh, don't see it. Don't see it. I wish I had someone that could look for me. Um, a primary challenge occurs. Da, 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 da. Oh, here we go. Nope. Uh, apparently, Wilmore in 1852, Fillmore, sorry. Um, Andrew Johnson in 1868, a Democratic president. Uh, oh, he was chosen to be a part of the Republican unity ticket by President Abraham Lincoln in 1864. Okay. And then, so three times. Three times is what I'm gathering. So let's keep on reading. With the majority of Americans disapproving the way President Trump is handling the coronavirus pandemic, Biden has jumped to an eight-point lead in an average of the national polls. He, he hasn't really said how he would do things different, so I don't know if this is a real poll, um, like if these numbers are real or they'll actually attribute out, uh, because this whole coronavirus is an interesting, unique approach. Honestly, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump coming on TV and telling us how much he knows about the virus and how much he studied the virus and how he thinks about wearing a mask. I honestly don't give an F a fuck about how you think about wearing a mask. Like, I, I don't care. I, I just want to hear from the doctors. Like, get the fuck off the screen, honestly. Uh, that's double what his advantage was at the end of February, and the presumptive Democratic nominee is at or near 50% in many surveys. Problematically for the president, actually, I'm kind of excited. Like, I didn't want this to not be a close race because I like political races. I like competition. I like seeing two people going head to head. I like not knowing who's going to win. I like that it's a lot closer. Um I'm, I'm kind of glad that it's Biden and not um, someone too far left, like Bernie or possibly, well, Elizabeth would probably be a pretty good run, too. Uh, maybe like, oh, God, what's his name? Beto or something that would just be probably wiped out. But this is a really good race. Um, but Biden's advantage in those national surveys has come largely from a drop in Trump supporters rather than a big increase and the percentage of people saying they would vote for Biden. The Biden campaign has been saying for months during this surge that it expects the race to tighten, and no one should be surprised if it does. Biden is like a C-level candidate. Honestly, I, I don't know how, how, how in America of so many great people, so many amazing doctors and lawyers do we end up with these two people, like I, I hope everyone out there who has degrees like me and common sense is looking at this and like, okay, okay, next four years, we're really going to put some good people in. Please help me get this out there. We need better people to run. That said, Biden has been seeing his lead grow in key states looking at 15 targeted states. This would be Colorado, Wisconsin, Arizona, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Michigan, Florida, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Texas, Iowa, and Nevada. Trump has held steady, or Biden has made statistically insignificant gains in Ohio. Man, I got a new light, and I don't know why, but it is warm. Uh, Trump has held steady, or Biden has made statistically insignificant gains in Ohio. Trump gained one, Biden leads by one, North Carolina, no change. 